Hello and welcome to the Free Life Community Church Podcast. My name is John DeLille, and I'm the communications guy at Free Life Community Church in Terre Haute, Indiana. Each week, Senior Pastor Dan Willis brings a rich, detailed, and relevant message grounded in Scripture, which is recorded on Sunday mornings and made available for you right here. You can find more messages at freelifecc.com or in the Google Play and iTunes podcast app. Hey, if you've benefited from listening to these messages, we ask that you try to help us out. You can help us out in two different ways. First, you can give us a rating in the app store that you use. Secondly, share this podcast with a family member, a friend, or a colleague. This really does help us to get these messages into the hands of the people who can really benefit from them. This week you'll be hearing from so assistant listening to pastor, the Chris video Robinson. testimony. I couldn't help but think like how much of my sermon goes along with what John Chile talked about. But God, right? So if you have your handout, if you get a bulletin, you may see that there's a question at the top of it. That question goes like this. In your lifetime, what is something you received you initially couldn't believe was for you? You know that moment where you got a gift or just anything in general? This is too good to be true, right? You don't deserve this. Have you ever had a moment like that in your life? I'm sure that you probably have, but you may be too old to remember it. <coughs> Maybe you don't want to remember it because you still can't believe it's true. Or maybe it was something completely unexpected. You know, sometimes those are the best gifts, right? When you, somebody just goes out of their way to give you something. I know one of my favorite things that I ever received was from Pastor, or not from Pastor, but from Bob Wilson, who seems like a pastor, right? He, he went out of his way to give me a Bible. You know, that was a great gift. He's done that for other people, too, and I'm sure that they would say the same. No... I went back to an opportunity to spend my honeymoon in Maui. Now, a lot of, some of you may have been to Hawaii, some of you may not have. Don't get me wrong, getting married was the best gift, but the honeymoon was just as good. <laughs> uh, Jessica's not in here, so that's, that's okay. Oh, yeah. We're hush-hush, right? Now, I know what you're thinking, that my wife got the short end of the stick of this one. <laughs> she got the Shrek, if you will. It's too bad she's not here, because we truly are beauty and the beast. And a mighty handsome beast, I might add at that. <laughs> but I, I, still, I still, it's that moment I reminisce about, like, I can't believe I went to Hawaii. You know, I had a friend of mine from Purdue... She uh, got a job at a Marriott in Hawaii. And I'd talk to her occasionally, and I'd be like, hey, how's it going? You know, you must be having a time of your life. You're in Hawaii. She's like, no, I'm not. I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, I live here now. It's not that big a deal. It's like, yeah, I guess I could kind of see that. You know, you work day to day in the same place, doing the same thing over and over again. Even though it's Hawaii, right? Big deal. I mean, you can't go to the beach whenever you want. You still have responsibility. You know, part of the reason we go on vacation is to get away from all that stuff and just sit on the beach or whatever you like to do. It may be hiking, whatever. But I can remember 
when I got the phone call from my mother, because what it was was a gift from her, I was at our neighbor's house, well, it would be my neighbor to my mom at the time. I was helping her with her math homework, and I get a phone call, and my mom goes, how would you guys like to go to Hawaii? Uh, yeah. Uh, what am I going to say? No. So that was a fantastic gift for me to have, you know, completely unexpected. Here's the next question. In the last 10 years, what is something you've worked tire tirelessly at, only to feel like you keep coming up short? I think we just had a testimony where eight years for eight years, they came up short, right? So what's something you've worked tirelessly at? It doesn't have to be a decade. It could be longer than that. It could be shorter than that. You just feel like you can never achieve the results that you want. And let me clarify something about this question. This question isn't asking, did you try once, fail, stop, and then feel good about the excuse, well, I exhausted every possibility. Because you know we do that, don't we? Try once, fail. Okay, it must not be God's will for my life. People like, like that excuse, right? Because it makes them feel like, oh yeah, I tried everything. So I can quit. No, this is a question about that thing that deep down is the driving force behind the real you. It keeps pushing you every day. And whatever it is, you keep leaning on this if-then mentality. It goes like this. If I become this, or if I have that, or if I can only have that again, then I'll be someone. Then I'll impress others, and they'll notice me. Then I'll be happy. Then, as most Christians say, I'll finally be accepted by God. And so you're probably wondering, where am I going with these two questions, right? Because they don't seem to correlate. Well, let me pull them together for you. The first question is really about remembering God's gift of grace and mercy. And that it's not a result of anything any of us could ever have or do. And really, if you couldn't answer the first question with, what is the greatest gift that you've ever received, unexpectedly or whatever, being God's grace of, and mercy, then I would say you have some mixed priorities. Because shouldn't that be our greatest gift, our salvation? I mean, it's mine. And now, granted, it took me 10 years to finally cut out the other things in my life and realize that they don't matter. But it is the greatest gift in my life. I don't know where I would be without him, based on the person I used to be. And you'll probably get a video about that, so I'm not going to tell you. But that should be our first and final answer, right? We shouldn't have to phone a friend. We shouldn't have to do all the other things that, I can't remember the game show, you want to be a millionaire. If it's not, I would suggest get some coffee or lunch with me. Schedule an appointment with pastor and or read Galatians 1 and Hebrews 11. 
Galatians 1, Paul is talking to the Galatian church, like, how are you so quickly turning to a different gospel? Do you not know what the gospel's about and how it changed your life? And then Hebrews 11 is just nothing but the hall of faith, talking about all these people and how they lived their life according to their faith. That will definitely change your perspective. And the second question, what you've worked tirelessly at, is a symptomatic question. A lot of Christians unknowingly fall into the trap of the greatest lie of our time. And as author Jim Collins puts it, good is the enemy of great. And that is one of the key reasons why we have so little that becomes great. Let me read that to you one more time. The greatest lie is God, good is the enemy of great. And that is one of the key reasons why we have so little that becomes great. Essentially, what he's saying is few people attain great Christian lives in part because it's just easy to settle for a good one. Sure, we'll toil to do good with minimal results, yet it just doesn't ever seem like we can ever please God. So the question becomes, is your Christian life pleasing to God, or would you say that your Christian life is pleasing to you? And it's for this reason that I've named the sermon, How You Say Who I Am, because we should know by now our actions tell a story that words either do or don't. And my prayer, my prayer for you today is be motivated to search yourself. Search your intentionality and the desires that come from within. You're going to feel really guilty probably after this sermon, which is a good thing, and I'll explain why later. But you should be motivated to constantly check yourself. Because if you see what only you see, then you don't see everything. And if you know only what you know, then you don't know everything. What about asking the one who sees all and knows all what he thinks about your Christian life? And it's not to condemn or convict or anything like that, but that's what pastor's been preaching about in James. Sometimes we have to get a fresh perspective because when you see all that you see, you don't really see. I love how Solomon puts this in Proverbs. He says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Everything comes out of your heart, your words, your thoughts, your intentionality. Are you guarding it? And then he goes on to say in Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. You can have all these thoughts, ideas, and stuff that you want to do, but in the end, who prevails? God. So ultimately, you've got to check yourself against him, right? So now, what is the greatest question? So how do you say who the Son of Man is? Well, don't you need to know who the Son of Man is in order to answer that? So what is the greatest question? 
Who is the Son of Man? Pick it up at Matthew 16, 13 through 15. He says, when Jesus came to the area of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his followers, who do people say the Son of Man is? They answered, some say you are John the Baptist, others say you are Elijah, and still others say you are Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then I would think that Jesus kind of leaned in real close, because, you know, when you build a connection, you get closer to somebody. He's just kind of leaned in real close to his disciples. Yeah, but who do you say that I am? I put a quote on your bulletin or on your outline from A.W. Tozer that says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let that sit for a second. The most important thing about you is how you think about God. So to answer the question, who is God? Or who do you say Christ is? You've got to answer that question. You've, you've got to. You see, this question from Christ, and I think A.W. Tozer suggests correctly from another different book, he says it haunts us until the grave. And what I mean by this is it's really easy to be a Christian when everything is going your way. And it's really, who do you say Christ is when things aren't going your way? It's about how you respond to moments when you're counting on a promotion that never happens. Or finances are scarce and you have to meet a deadline at a certain time. Or what about when you're falsely accused of something or you've done everything right, but you still end up going to prison? And lastly, what if the diagnosis is positive and you or someone you love has a terminal illness? Who is Christ then? Sure, we can tell others we're fine and God is good, but deep down we wonder, who does God think he is? Sure, you, you created all this stuff that I enjoy, that I, you know, is marvelous and awesome, and, but how dare you? You have the power to cure cancer to get somebody pregnant. But right now, how dare you? And I think God just kind of sits back, kind of chuckles to himself, and he, he says, or he'd like to say to us in person, when did I tell you the Christian life was an easy-to-follow formula? Or when did I tell you I sent my son for your comfort? <sighs> I'm not done. I'm only getting started here. <laughs> but these are questions, you know, we don't think about. You know, we, we assume there's a formula out there. If I'm in my Bible, if I'm going to church regularly, everything's going to work out, right? You know somebody that's preaching that down in Houston. And if things aren't going your way, guess what? You're not saved. And that's what he'd, he'd tell you. There's all kinds of false gospels out there. And the reason I reference Galatians 1 is that Paul wanted to put an end to that kind of thinking. There is no formula for an easy Christian life. Christ did not come for your comfort. He came for so much more than that. And yes, yesterday, speaking of comfort... 
Amanda said, you know, we're hush-hush about the comment I made about Jessica. Her and I are actually very similar in a lot of ways. I hate hot weather. And some of you are going to be like, what do you mean? You like going to Hawaii. You just said you did. It's Indiana hot weather I hate. <laughs> so maybe I should specify, right? All I did was throw some wiffle balls last night and sit on our patio chair, and I sweat profusely. I hated it. I was not comfortable. So I just kind of like went inside, showered, and started folding laundry. And Jessica comes into the bedroom, and she's like, are you cranky? <laughs> no, I'm fine. But we all know what comfort is, right? We all want to be comfortable. We all want our Christian life to be comfortable, so to speak. But we have to remember that Christ came for a whole bunch more than that. You know, and recently, I had to ask and answer this question myself. Who do I say Christ is? I found myself recently in Hebrews 12, 2. It goes on to say, after verse 1, focusing on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of faith. And I'm reading this from the Amplified Version because it adds some more synonyms and stuff that I like. So anyway, he says, focusing on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of faith, the one who brings our faith to maturity, who for the joy of accomplishing the goal set before him endured the cross, disregarding the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, Revealing his deity, his authority, and the completion of his work. It made me realize that by using the word author, he is writing every detail of my life, whether I like it or not. And he's doing it with my best interest in mind. For me and others, through me, to be able to, as Luke 21:36 says, stand before the Son of Man. And so who is he really? You know, you're often told to read the four Gospels if you're a new con convert. Um, the book of John is a good place to start because it's really the autobiography of Jesus. But the reason I'm going to Revelation is that the first three chapters do a very good job of doing what the Gospels do, but they do some more. So who is he really? I'm going to start, I'm just going to skim through chapter 1 real quick. So we know that this is who Jesus Christ is because verse 1 says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. John goes on to say in verses 5 through 6 that he is faithful and trustworthy. He's the faithful and trustworthy witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who always loves us and who has once and for all freed us, washed us, by his own blood, and formed us into kings and priests to his God and Father. He always loves us. He freed us. He washed us. He essentially purified us by his sacrifice. And guess what? He formed us into kings and queens and priests to his God the Father. Verse 8, he goes on this. Jesus, through John, says, I am the Alpha and Omega, 
the beginning and the end. Time, your concept of time does nothing for me. I'm before time and I'm after time. I am he who exists forever and he who was existing in the past and who, guess what, is to come. The almighty, the omnipotent, the ruler of all. Are you starting to get who Jesus is? He's not some meek and mild, blue-eyed Nazarene who caught a lot of fish, who made a lot of bread. He is our Lord and Savior. He is indescribable, great. I mean, human words lack what, who he really is. I love verse 16, the second part of it. It says, his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength, which is also referenced in Malachi 4.2. One of my favorite passages, because if you were like me as a kid, you were always told not to look up into the sun, right? And what happened when you did? <laughs> you were blinded by it, right? Now, if you're like me too, you probably as a kid took a flashlight and like looking right into it. Could explain why I have contacts, but... But you know, you know that brightness, right? And how hard it is to look directly into that light. Could you imagine seeing Jesus like that? You know, uh, one, of my, one of the movies I enjoyed was, um, I forget which Lord of the Rings it is, but Gandalf the Gray becomes Gandalf the White. And it always makes me think of the transfiguration of Jesus, that he was sort of this gray, grayish human that became Jesus the white, so to speak. And please, I'm not trying to, I'm just trying to, in my own mind, figure out, you know, I, Amanda's laughing, so she's, I can't look at her anymore. Yeah, I, it's, it's good, right? But could you imagine standing there when Jesus was transfigured? I mean, mind blown, right? And so I love that passage that his countenance was like the sun shining in all of its strength. And then verse 18, a passage I would highly recommend you, you memorize. He says, I am he who lives. I was dead, and behold, I live forevermore. Amen. And as you reflect on Revelation 1 and the things that I spoke about, have you ever thought of Christ like this? I mean, if you've ever grew up in Sunday school, you had flannel graphs and all these other things that depicted Jesus in a certain way, and maybe that's what stuck with you. Or you've, you've had to hit rock bottom to really figure out who Jesus is. And so the purpose of the question is, who is Jesus really to you? Only you can answer that question. And as we're doing this video series, I can't tell you what he's going to do for you. I can only tell you what he's done for me. I can't tell you who he's going to be for you. I can only tell you who he's going to be for me. Now, sure, there's universal characteristics, but he's changed my life in a way I never imagined. So after, we probably could just stop there with that question, right? Just let you stew on that for a little bit. But because I was asked to preach, and it's only... 11.35, you got more. 
So I would argue the second most important question after you can answer who Jesus is, what are you going to do with him once you figure out who he is? As we learn from the parable of the sower and James that pastor's been preaching about, there has to be a response from believing Christ died, rose again, and then hearing the word in general. So what are those responses? Well, there's four of them. First of all, you just don't understand it, right? I mean, how many of us, that, maybe you've done this, I've done it. I want, I want to try this whole Christian thing out, so I'm just going to, okay, first Samuel. When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory seven months, the Philistines called for the priest. What does that even mean? I don't know. Somebody else tell me about it. Nope. Some of you may have done that before in your lives. Like, I want to know what's in there, but because I don't what's the ark? What's the, who's the Philistines? You know, it's like country music to me. Somebody the other day said, do you like Chris Stapleton? And I was like, what's a Chris Stapleton? Get out of here, Amanda. Yeah, I, I am not a country. This is country music to me. You know, as it's all Greek to me. You've ever heard that saying? We talked about it last Sunday night. If you don't understand something, I don't understand country music, so it's all country music to me. But we've done that, right? We've got, found ourselves probably in Scripture, like, what does that mean? Uh, we talked about 2 Corinthians 12 last Sunday night and talked about the third heaven. That was a little bit much even for me. And I'm no Bible expert, but that was a lot. So there's even stuff in there that I've spent my last five years trying to get in this as much as possible, and I still don't quite understand everything. It takes time. It takes baby steps. It takes the Holy Spirit. So essentially, you don't understand it, or you really don't want to. So Satan takes your heart back. The parable of the sower goes on to say that Maybe you had initial joy from hearing the word. Oh, yeah, Christ died for my sins. That's, yeah. But then the insecurities of your flesh took over and won your heart back. Maybe you heard but didn't really listen. And the worries of this world took your heart back. Do you kind of see what I did there? I made an unholy trinity unholy trinity you know we have the holy trinity the father son and the holy spirit but we also have an unholy trinity satan the flesh and the world the parable of the sower says those three things manipulate you into focusing on them and not god but if your focus is on christ those three things while they will tempt you they don't have the power to take it away from you, what's in there. So that's why he goes on to say the fourth option is you hear the word, it makes sense to you, you apply it, and you find you're fruitful. You know, I'm willing to bet that there's a lot of things in here I, I don't understand, and I've already mentioned that. I'm willing to bet there's a lot of things in here you guys don't understand. But you haven't stopped. You're trying to understand it, right? And so you make sense of things as you progress in your walk and relationship with him. That makes sense to maybe only you. 
So then you apply that stuff to your life, whether it be work, at home, and you notice that things are different. You notice that you don't greet your wife with a, I'm fine, or your husband. I hate when she calls me grumpy. <laughs> it annoys me to no end. So maybe I snapped at her. So here's my confession. I, I repent of ever snapping at my wife ever again. Good luck with that, right? <laughs> no, I wouldn't, but... But essentially, you know, the word, if you let it over time, will take hold. It will grow roots, and it will make you a different person. I remember uh, a gentleman by the name of Danny Nevins that I work with. He uh, went on a work trip with my dad. My dad used to work at Amphicet uh, before he passed away, and they went on a trip together. We, uh, we, used, we used to have a location up in Vancouver. And uh, on the way back, I guess some discussion about me came up, and Danny said, yeah, your dad asked, what, what did we do to you? And he was like, what do you mean, what did we do to your son? He's like, he's different. He's actually nice to me. <laughs> People will notice a difference, whether you notice one or not. And oftentimes you won't hear about it. Which, I will admit, sucks, right? Because you want to know that you're doing everything right. So as we progress through Revelation, we're going to go Revelation 2, 1 through 3. Here's how the church of Ephesus responds. Jesus says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I being Christ, know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. If we were to look it up in Acts 19, Paul gives us a little bit more insight into the church of Ephesus. Essentially, what he does there is he lays his hand on 12 of the men who receive the Holy Spirit. And he stays there for two years having discussions daily so that all the Jews and Greeks who live in that province will hear the word of the Lord. So basically, Acts 19 shows us that the church of Ephesus basically for two years went through seminary. So you have Christ giving them, you know, ups, if you will. Then you have Paul, who in the book of Acts explains that they basically went through an informal seminary. So these guys are really no dummies. They know what they're supposed to know, and they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. D.A. Horton writes... Now, any good leader will tell you it's important for employees and volunteers to do their jobs well. I think any leader that has anybody below them would want that and say that, right? He goes on to say, however, they'll also tell you the employees and volunteers who do great work have a passion for what they do, for the people they do it with, and for the people they do it for. Essentially, 
these people clock in for more than a paycheck. They spend their work days advancing the goals and missions of their organization. And when it comes to God, it really isn't any different. He desires we serve him from a heart of love, love his mission, to which we're called to every day, and put him first and others before ourselves. So you have the Church of Ephesus, which seems to be doing everything right, who seems to be going above and beyond what, what D.A. Horton is implying, right? Suggesting that when it comes to our spirituality, that we as good Christians should want to go above and beyond the surface level. So what's the problem? That's where we pick it up at verses 4 through 5. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That's a big deal. So how could somebody be doing everything right, but yet still not get it? What John is not saying is that the Ephesian church has completely walked away from God. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that something's not quite right. He's saying instead of focusing on God as the reason for their intention of why they're doing what they're doing, they've turned their focus to obligation, satisfaction, or recognition. In our humanists, those three things typically sound good, right? Except for obligation. We don't want to feel obligated to come to church or have fun in a women's group. I mean, that's really a dirty word in the church, isn't it? I'm obligated to... No. That's not what he's saying. But if you put your focus on being obligated, that's when something is not right. Those other two things, yeah, are self-explanatory, right? Satisfaction. I want to pat myself on the back for doing this, these good works. But obligation, we don't really... I don't know if we really... Because it's just a bad word. It's just a naughty word that we just don't want to use. And so we've really, we've all done this before, right? This, this whole concept of what the Ephesian church is doing. Think about, think about when you've either taken on a new job or a project at your current job. Don't you start it with aspirations of it being great? Don't you just want it to be the best? Or you're, you have this vision from the company organization that, you know, we, we do do this, this, and your whole mindset behind what you're doing is supposed to be shaped by that. But over time, that mindset starts to go away. It becomes just a routine. Work is, how many in here would say work is fun? They, they enjoy what they do. I mean, there are, there are some people, there are. You know, I, I try to remind myself that I color the world with plastics. <laughs> but I, I do have a good job. I, 
I do enjoy it, but nonetheless, you get what I'm saying, right? We've all done there. We've, we've all been there. You know, any profession, you go into with high expectations, but as that profession starts to weigh on you, the employees, the workload, those expectations start to dwindle and dwindle and dwindle when you you're finally get to the point where you're comfortable with just good work. My nine to five at five, I am done. If, if I got a good work for my boss, great. Unfortunately, that mindset kind of shifts over to our spirituality. And so, really, the question is, we're just keeping ourselves busy. So who's really benefiting from us just staying busy? The Ephesian church had all these good things going for them. But at the end of the day, Jesus said, you're just busy. I'm, I'm thankful you're doing those things, but yet I still hold something against you. Kind of pierces the heart, doesn't it? So what's really going on? Jesus, or Jesus sees right through us. Pastor last week preached on those who are only hearers of the word in the book of James and how they deceive themselves into thinking hearing the word of God without proper application is appropriate for the relationship with God. And so let me, let me ask you this question. If, let's say your spouse, if they were only to hear you but not listen to you, how would that work out? Not very good, right? And so it appears here, it appears here that the Ephesian church, while they heard the word and were doing good things, they weren't really listening. They forgot what they looked like. They forgot what James talked about. I hope some of you have comfortable couches. Because if you're not listening to your spouse, you might want to fix that. And so what do hearers of the word really look like? This is the theology that the Ephesian church is being fed. Get saved, then get to work. Ever felt that way before? Or get right with God, then get to work. This idea that once people place their faith in Christ, they're often given a list of rules or works to follow. Read the Bible, pray, go to church on Sunday, volunteer, you know the drill. And guess what? When you're tired, suck it up, buttercup. There's still more work to do, right? Now, I don't want you to hear me say these things aren't part of a healthy Christian lifestyle because they are absolutely a part of a healthy Christian lifestyle. But the key word is a healthy one. Like any healthy relationship, you put time into it, right? You do things and go out of your way to make sure that relationship stays healthy. But when your focus is completely on the task at hand, 
for some sort of outcome, you've lost focus on the bigger picture. And so what Jesus is trying to warn the Ephesians in the book of Revelation and us is where is your focus? Is it on him or is it on the to-do list? Because it's real easy to check off a lot of those things and get upset at yourself when you don't. If you're upset that you're not reading your Bible every day, what's the focus on? Yourself, yeah. If you're upset that you're not praying every day, where's the focus at? Do you want to do that stuff? Absolutely, I do. I'm just wired differently. But I'm not going to beat myself up if I don't get it done. And who's to say that I'm not praying? Paul would indicate that in Romans, the Spirit is constantly interceding for us. But the focus has to be on the relationship with him, first and foremost, before any of that stuff. Sunday mornings are great. I love coming to the church on Sunday mornings. But if my focus is I wake up and, church today, got to get those kids ready. <laughs> Some of you are like, amen. What's, the focus isn't on Christ. The focus isn't on he is risen. You know, one of the things that I read about was that the church fathers for 200 years celebrated every Sunday as if it were Easter. Yet we make it a one-day holiday, paint some eggs, talk about the Easter bunny, and that's it. Where's our focus? So yeah, I don't want you to hear me say pray, reading your Bible, going to church, volunteering are bad things. But they can manipulate you into thinking you're doing all the right things when you're actually not. Listen to James in 2, 14 through 18. And Pastor, we'll get to this probably in two weeks. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? So James is asking the question, so what good is it just to have faith if you don't have works behind it? Can that faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and be well fed, but does nothing, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe there is one God. Good. But guess what? Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. Two things James is saying here. One is that a head Intellectual knowledge of Christ is not enough because even Satan and the demons have that. 
what good is it for you to get more knowledge about God, go home and do nothing, is essentially what James is saying. And secondly, James says, works are an integral part of showing and proving that we truly love God. So again, hear me. I am not saying works aren't important. They do have to be a part of a healthy Christian lifestyle, but they can't be our complete focus. And so the deeper ish, issue is, do you really love God? Mark 12, 28 through 31, one of the teachers of the law came and asked Jesus, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So if you were to go back to verse 2 of Revelation, chapter 2, you would see that the Ephesian church did a very good job of loving God with all their strength and with all their mind. But where was their heart and soul? They didn't realize they were being hypocritical, programmed machines going through the motions and motivated by something other than love. You, you see why it's important to remember your why? I mean, there is a driving force behind everything that you do. It's the why of what you do. I remember a speaking technique uh, done by theater people, they remember their through line. It's the line that most characterizes their character. And so I'd ask you, what is your through line? Mine used to be Ecclesiastes 12.3, remember thy creator. Now it's changed to Galatians 2.20 that says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. In this life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and died for me. So what is your through line? Is it that one passage that just sticks out? That one thing that the Holy Spirit just keeps bringing to your mind? There is a driving force behind everything that we do. A purpose. So going back to the Ephesian church, they... I mean, we obviously can see that they loved God with all their strength and with all their mind. But where was their heart and soul? They were motivi motivated by something other than love. And why is this dangerous? 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, as a lot of us know it by, verses 1 through 3. If I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now, here recently, uh, for King and Country, they sing a song with 1 Corinthians 13 in it. If you get a chance, if you've got Pandora, Spotify, listen to that song. It will resonate with you. 
And essentially what Paul is saying is that you can have two master's degrees, you can be a pastor, you can do all this wonderful stuff and know what the Bible says, but if you don't have love for others, love for God influencing you, it doesn't mean anything. You have nothing, you gain nothing, and guess what? You are nothing. So what are you motivated by? Who is Christ really? You know, these are questions that really reflect your spirituality. I love how uh, John puts this in his first epistle. 1 John chapter 3, 16 through 18, he says this, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. As I said at the onset of this sermon, our actions speak a lot louder than our words can ever do. You want to know who, if you're really being a Christian? Just ask your family, because that's where your witness will show up first. Actions speak louder than words. I believe it was Francis of Assisi, Assisi, I can't, maybe I'm saying it wrong, but he was, he always believed that let's go spread the gospel, and if we must, let's use words. Shouldn't we be doing that at work? Shouldn't we be doing that at home? Shouldn't we be doing that in any relationship? Go and spread the gospel, and if you must, use words. Now, one of the things that I've really found myself doing a lot of is asking people to lunch. Because you don't, do you know how open people are when you buy them free food? <laughs> I, may, I, I make this joke that if you would have gave me free food 20 years ago, I'd have been a Christian a long time ago. Because <laughs> the quickest way to my heart is through my stomach. I love to eat. But just doing a gesture like that can get somebody open. All you got to do is ask, admire, and admit. You remember those three things? You ask, you know, ask a person about their life. Because what's the easiest topic for a person to talk about? Themselves, right? Then you admire them. You just say, you know, I thought it was really great. Just recently I went to lunch with a person who's not here today, which I was praying she would be, but... I just went to lunch with her, and you know, I admired. She handled a audit we just did for our plant. I just told her, you know, I just think it's great how you're able to handle all this upper management and stuff like that, and how you just you just get to the point. And then I admitted some of my insecurities and stuff doing an audit. I mean, if anybody's ever audited somebody, you know, that's not ever a fun task because you have to ask them questions about their job, and what's the first thing they do? Get defensive. I mean, how would you like it if I came to your job and asked you about it? That made it sound like, hey, you're not doing your job correctly. Yes, yeah, sure, Amp Ampaset has standard procedures, but you know over time procedures kind of go out the window and you have your own way of doing things. And if those, that own way of doing things doesn't line up with procedure, then you might get a mark against you. 
thankfully, we had just some minor stuff. But procedure, I always laugh at because I have to read all these procedures prior to doing this audit. And I'm like, man, I don't want to sound like a robot when I ask these questions. But it's so hard not to because you try to use the terminology that your company has set in place and all that good stuff. And it's like, basically, you just have to be like, man, when you push that button, what does it do? Does it do this? And that's really, you get them open like, no, it does this, it does this. And if they know the procedure and can explain it to me, that's all you got to do. But really, when it goes back to sharing our faith, just ask, admire, admit. The, the AAA, if you will. So our actions speak louder than our words. And I, I, I'll pause for a second. Because I told you, you might be feeling kind of guilty right now. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. And I told you that was a good thing. If all these things that line up with the Ephesian church kind of feels like it lines up with you, okay, that's a good thing. You know why? Because it gives you a chance to repent. Guilt is not a bad thing. It gives you the opportunity to say, okay, God, I confess or I agree with you that maybe my Christianity is not where it should be. And maybe I am too focused on doing A, B, and C and not you. Help me to change. Oh, Holy Spirit, motivate me to search myself. I love how David puts it in Psalm 139. Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's real easy to, quote-unquote, feel like you're following procedure and do things that you think is right. And over time, procedurally, things get grayed, and you lose sight of the bigger picture. Verse, verses 5 through 7 go on to give us hope. Essentially, repentance and confession. And I use a line here from Eddie Money, two tickets to paradise. Nobody else? Nobody laughed? Man. I just remember that Geico commercial, I think it was, where he's like, I got two tickets to paradise. And he's like 120 years old. That's about the extent of my singing, okay? So basically, what does this boil down to? Okay, so we're off mark. We've lost our focus. How do we get back on track? I just want to give you a couple habits, a couple habits that will make the difference, in my opinion. First, quit being insecure and focus on others. And what do I mean by that? Insecure people put the focus on themselves instead of toward God. The Ephesian church really wasn't loving others because they thought they were doing everything right because they thought they were pretty good. And essentially the focus was on them. And I know this because Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, Paul had to remind them, hey, this isn't about works and this can't come from you. Nothing 
nothing you can do you can boast about. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 that the greatest of these, faith, hope, and love, is love. So quit being insecure about yourself and just love others. Insecurities just mean you're focusing on yourself. Focus on others. Focus on him first and others second. Second habit, be a person of integrity. I've already told you, actions speak louder than words. And Solomon goes on to say in Proverbs 10.9, Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but whoever takes crooked paths will be found out. Make sure your words align with your actions. It's one thing to say you're a Christian, and Monday through Saturday it's completely another to be a different person. And I'll, I'll give you a, a one-up, that if you start being a person of integrity, you likely already have a leg up on 99% of the world. Isn't that scary? I just heard that quoted the other day. Like, integrity is a thing of the past. I mean, you can see it in our media, right? Some of the best movies are about lies and papers. But anymore, every movie is. Just be a person of integrity. Make sure you, show, the real you, shows up. Thirdly, focus on outcomes. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For those who come to God must believe he is, and that he is a rewarder of those seek him, who seek him. You know, God wants us to be focused on the salvation of others. That's ultimately why he created everybody, was to be in relationship with them. But currently, not everybody's in relationship with him. So that's why we're still alive, because we have a responsibility. You know, it'd be, it would have been real easy, once we got saved, to be taken from the planet. But there's a reason we're still here. There's a reason we're still at the job we despise. There's a reason we still see the family member we do not like. You see, in this century, we put so much emphasis on the journey and often forget why we started the journey in the first place. Because what happens is the journey is producing meaningless results. You know, we have a spiritual journey, sure. But if we're not producing anything of it, we forget the why we even started in the first place. That's why I mentioned Ecclesiastes 12.1. Remember your creator. Put him behind everything that you do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Ask him what you can give up. You know, the Holy Spirit is only going to fill you as much as you allow it. Would you rather be a glass half empty or half full? Or do you want to be overflowing? 
you can focus on outcomes by remembering and reflecting on God's faithfulness. You know, we saw a video this morning about doing that. What this does is it helps you recalibrate. I know if that terminology is kind of out there. Do you know what a lot of our submarines do to recalibrate? They go up and they point towards the North Star. That's how a lot of our subs recalibrate their equipment. It's not by anything technological. It's by the North Star, which is kind of crazy to think about. But they have to do that because over time, underwater and all that pressure, those <laughs> torpedoes may get misaligned. And if those torpedoes get misaligned and they go to fire them, they're not going to have a fun time. So sometimes we need to recalibrate. You know, if you go through the Old Testament, what did God have to do to the Israelites? He had to remind them of what he had done for them. He had to remind them of the outcome of their faith. And we could so easily do that with our testimonies. We just have to be reminded that who God was in that situation and know that he is still with us and wants to get us through what we're going through. So the reason I said two tickets to paradise, Revelation 2, 7, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Our actions say who Jesus Christ is to everybody. The greatest testimony you can ever give to anybody is an integrity witness. Just, if you say you're a Christian, be a Christian. You know, start a conversation with that person everybody else doesn't like at work or in your family. Start with prayer. You know, baby steps. Someone said he wins the race. How many more cliches do you want me to pop out? But it does, right? I mean, we, we try to take control of everything. We try to do, 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 do some more. Suck it up, buttercup. And do some more. But we lose focus doing and doing on who the real God is, as if those results can be determined by us. I didn't put it in here, but Lamentations 3.37. If you get a chance to look it up, I would highly recommend it. And so as the worship team comes, I want to read to you this passage from A.W. Tozer's book, The Crucified Life. He says, The starting point of our journey is knowing who Jesus Christ really is. And with any journey, there are obstacles. If we rest on our own strength, guess what? We fail. However, there is strength in Jesus Christ, and that makes the Christian journey successful. But again, it's not automatic. The soul must be cultivated like a garden, and our will sanctified. Heavenly treasures must be sought, and we must seek those things that are, that are above and make war on the things that are below. Sounds a little fatalistic, but he's right. 
Too many Christians are satisfied with average status quo and never cross the finish line of the race, even when they think they're still in the race. So what is the secret and where does their strength come from? It comes from, instead of putting emphasis on, like other religions do, focusing on the do, the D-O. Because ultimately, Christianity focuses on the D-O-N-E. It is finished. And as James is essentially saying, we don't work to get saved, we work because we are saved. 